please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 17 of Allergy Talk, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today's episode, we will be reviewing three more articles from the July-August 2020 issue of Allergy Watch, a bi-monthly publication which provides research summaries to college members from the major journals in allergy and immunology. You can also earn CME credit by listening for information about CME credit or to read archived issues of Allergy Watch, head over to college.acaai.org slash publications slash Allergy Watch. And one more thing, we are continuing the discussion with key talk takeaways, engaging questions, and engagement with the community. Please log in to the Doc Matter app and join the ACAAI community. Hello, everyone. My name is Jerry Lee. I am one of the co-hosts of Allergy Talk. I'm an associate professor at Emory University School of Medicine, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts. First, Dr. Stan Feynman. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm glad to be here. I'm the editor-in-chief of Allergy Watch and uh, I'm in practice here in Atlanta. And the third chair is Dr. Marin Kalangara. Hi, everyone. This is Marin Kalangara, and I'm an assistant professor of allergy and immunology at the Emory Clinic. Well, thanks for everyone for joining our part two review of the July-August 2020 issue of Allergy Watch. We have a potpourri of articles, so I think we'll start with Dr. Stan Feynman, who is going to be talking about not reintroducing food after spending all the work on food challenges. Yes, it, uh, that's what piqued my interest because this is an article that uh, uh, Shyam Josie reviewed for Allergy Watch. He's one of our newer reviewers. He's doing a wonderful job, and I highly recommend you looking out for his reviews because I think he's very good at uh, getting the meat of the, uh, of the article. And the article was entitled, Reintroduction Failure After Negative Food Challenges in Adults is Common and Mainly Due to Atypical Symptoms. And this was published in Clinical Allergy. Uh, in January of this year. So and this is from the Netherlands, uh, from uh, uh, Utrecht, Netherlands, the allergy division there. And what it was a uh, prospective study. Uh, so we do know that like in, in, in children, it's been studied well. We do know that after a negative oral food challenge, many patients do not reintroduce their tested food into the diet. And the reasons have been studied a lot in children, but not really in adults. So this was a prospective study examining the frequency and the risk factors for reintroduction failure after negative oral food challenge in adults. So it included 80 adults. They underwent a total of 113 negative oral food challenges in the uh, allergy division there in uh, Utrecht, Netherlands, in between 2014 and 2017. The mean age was uh, 32 years of age, and two-thirds of the patients were women. And 82% had at least one comorbid allergic condition, and 76% were sensitized to uh, any type of food. So they broke them into a long-term failure and short-term failure. The short-term failure was considered two weeks after the oral food challenge, and 20% of the patients had reintroduction failure after uh, within two weeks of the oral food challenge. About half of them reported symptoms on ingestion, and nearly a quarter 
said that they had no reason to eat the food that was tested. And uh, so they just didn't do it. Then at five to 12 months, uh, the reintroduction failure rate increased to 40%. That's considered a long-term uh, failure. 59% of those patients cited some atypical symptoms, mainly some GI symptoms or some skin and mucosal symptoms. And 24%, so a quarter of them, expressed a fear of an allergic reaction. Uh, even though they had an oral challenge, it was negative in the, uh, in the office, in the, in the division. So risk factors for reintroduction failure included uh, the culprit foods that were not on the uh, European Union list of regulated allergens. So you know that the uh, European Union has a, a precautionary allergy label, uh, a PAL, of 13 foods. So those include cereals, including gluten, crustaceans, eggs, fish, peanuts, soy, milk, nuts, cereal, mustard, sesame, lupin, and mollusks. So when you go to a, a restaurant or buy food in uh, the EU, there will be a, a, P, a precautionary warning uh, listing all those food. If those foods are in there, it'll, it'll list them in there. So it's a, it's a little more rigorous than we have here in the, uh, in the U.S. But again, that was, uh, you know, one of the factors that contributed to the fear. And um, another was the short-term reintroduction failure. So if the patient didn't, you know, failed in the first two weeks, then it was going to be a long-term failure as well. Atypical symptoms of oral food challenge, the atypical symptoms like stomach upset and maybe some skin and also lower quality of life and a higher state of anxiety. So the patients who are more anxious tended to have more of the longer-term failure. So up to 40% of adults may experience reintroduction failure after a negative oral food challenge. So 20% for short-term, 40% for long-term, and the atypical symptoms such as indigestion and GI symptoms were the most common reason for failure. And what Dr. Josie pointed out, or what he, what he said that he feels that um, the study helps to identify reasons and risk factors for reintroduction failure, which may help inform patient selection and create a more careful and individualized discussion after we have a negative oral challenge in our offices. So uh, once again, I think it's a matter of education uh, and shared decision-making and making sure the patient understands, but that's a pretty high failure rate, you know, even after you go through all those challenges. So I guess the big question is, what was the goal of the challenge? I, I mean, that's me one point about this. I think one goal is, is it anaphylaxis, right? I, I think, do they need to carry an epinephrine auto-injector? But another goal would be to reassure them that it's okay to eat this food. And I feel goal one is often achieved, but goal two isn't. We have, you know, a lot of kids who don't like the food or have aversion, but I do agree the anxiety of the food challenge not being sufficient evidence to reintroduce the food, or since it's a non-type 1 reaction, they are still having the symptoms that bother them or concern them, definitely can happen. So the atypical symptom point of the article completely makes sense to me. I still think not requiring epinephrine auto-injector is useful information. The only concern of that, obviously, is prolonged avoidance and the potential of loss of tolerance. But other than that, I'm not sure if that's a total 
you know, waste of time. I, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I mean, is it bad that I'm not even phased by that number of 40%? Because I just feel like that's, that's probably my failure rate in clinic. And maybe I'm just not doing a good enough job of like shared decision making and individualization of therapy. Because what I've, in, I mean, and this stand, this was an adult study, correct? Correct. This is all adults. Yeah. So exactly. So in my adult clinic, I've often found that even after passing a food challenge without any symptoms, either patients don't reintroduce the food, or if they do, they almost always have subjective symptoms and then they remove the food anyway. Well, that's exactly what they found in uh, the Netherlands. (laughs) Exact same thing. So it makes sense that the shared decision-making conversation doesn't dominate by our agenda, which is you're not allergic. It's what's the patient, what are they going to get out of the, the food challenge? And maybe if the goal is not reintroduction, but reassuring that it's not going to be a life threatening anaphylactic reaction, that's, I think a reasonable goal. That's a, that's a success. That's not a failure. I think. No, it's quite. And the, the fact that they, if they don't need, if they're not at risk for anaphylaxis and they don't need an epinephrine auto injector, I mean, that's major to me. I mean, that's a mm-hmm. very big expense. And, you know, again, I, I constantly harp on my patients that, you know, you, you, you do an intervention because it's necessary. And, and if you don't need an epinephrine auto injector, you certainly don't need to have it. Well, going to the next article, I found this was sort of surprising that potentially stress could lead to allergy shot reactions? Yes. So I will be discussing a case report that was published in the annals recently describing emotional stress as a cofactor in anaphylaxis. And it was reviewed in Allergy Watch by Vivian Hernandez Trujillo. I routinely myself ask about cofactors in all my patients with a history of anaphylaxis, since cofactors are now thought to contribute to about 30% of all anaphylaxis cases, and the list of possible cofactors continues to grow. I have seen some others try to make this distinction between augmenting factors, which influence the immune mechanism, such as exercise, infections, NSAIDs, PPIs, alcohol, hormones, and cofactors, which they say do not have any actual influence on the immunologic mechanism. And these would include psychological factors such as emotional stress or sleep deprivation. Since we are not entirely sure about the mechanisms underlying each of these risk factors, I think this precludes such a stringent categorization. And so I refer to all of the above as cofactors. And I really use the term augmenting factor very rarely, but I would use it interchangeably with cofactor. This case was of a 12-year-old female child who was started on subcutaneous immunotherapy for allergic rhinitis and asthma, and she had been on maintenance for more than a year without a history that was more significant than just large local reactions. But then one day she came into an injection appointment and she was very upset due to a personal stressor. After she calmed down a little, she was given her allergy shot and within a few minutes, she developed urticaria at her new injection sites, but also her previous injection sites on both arms. She initially received oral antihistamines, but her symptoms continued to evolve. She developed dyspnea, 
and this worsened with mild audible wheezing. Due to the involvement of her skin, as well as possible involvement of her respiratory system, she received intramuscular epinephrine, and this resulted in prompt resolution of her dyspnea and her overall what they call general condition, including her emotional distress. In this case, emotional stress appears to have been a predisposing factor to an anaphylactic reaction to a subcutaneous immunotherapy injection in a child. I thought the discussion of the article was also interesting. It talks about increasing numbers of patients with atopic conditions and reports of stress exacerbating allergy. For instance, studies on skin prick testing in allergic patients found larger wheel size with acute stressors and also stress enhances airway inflammation in response to allergen challenges in terms of sputum eosinophil counts and eosinophil-derived neurotoxin levels. And more recently, oral food challenges performed in peanut allergic adults showed significantly reduced reaction thresholds after sleep deprivation or exercise. Based on this case report, the authors actually recommended withholding subcutaneous immunotherapy injections in any patients with acute emotional distress and prompt administration of epinephrine for suspected anaphylaxis in any patient who is distressed and crying. Any thoughts on this? Well, first, I think that is just so interesting that that emotional stress lowered the threshold for reactivity. And it just makes me think about maybe less about what questionnaire we ask for shot visits, but think about all the immunotherapy we're proposing to do at home, like OIT for peanut. You know, they're going to be taking peanut every day. Is there going to be an occasion where they're stressed? Yes. That's going to happen. So, you know, we already talked about sleep deprivation right. and you talked about infection and now we're adding that to the list. Some of these kids will be taking exams. They'll be, they'll be in school. Um, was, uh, how do we assess the safety? It's, it's really an interesting conundrum, but psychoimmunology and how it's related, you know, Galen Marshall's work is so interesting and how they're looking at the sympathetic and the, you know, the hypoadrenal pituitary axis, you know, it, it, it's so interesting how that these, these neurotransmitter releases potentially modify the immune system. Um, and we don't know much more about that. It, it, it certainly is an area of research that we'd love to understand further. Right. They didn't, they didn't really delve into the mechanism too much or the purported mechanism. All they really said was that acute stress may release neuropeptides and neurotransmitters and other stress-related substances. So Galen Marshall's reported, um, you know, changes in certain uh, uh, cytokines, including IL-6 uh, uh, production in, in patients who, you know, are, are stressed or under anxiety, you know, in conjunction with he did a study looking at uh, uh, stress and the size, changing the size of a, a skin test, which is similar to you know, this type of reaction. But I think Jerry's point was kind of interesting because, you know, we have patients who come in and uh, especially children who, uh, you know, cry when they get a shot. And they uh, and, and we have patients who, let's say, have uh, attention deficit disorder or autism spectrum who, 
you know, have a difficulty when they get uh, their allergy shot and they cry and they, uh, you know, you wonder about, you know, uh, I haven't personally seen, you know, significant reactions to that, but, uh, um, you know, I think we need to look for it a little more closely now. I think, yeah, the, the safety of these, these immunotherapy products, we just have to empower our patients to have be self-aware and, and remind ourselves to add that to the list. I know that at one point sounds like a lot of stuff to remember, especially if I'm telling someone to take their daily OIT dose every day. But again, I think the patients uh, are appreciating that we are empowering them to uh, protect themselves from potential reactions. Um, and, 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 sir, and certainly just in general, addressing stress in our patients, although, you know, we're very busy and we have a focus and comfort level with the medical side of allergy immunology. If we know that there's this psychoimmunology relationship where stress can exacerbate asthma and potentially allergic reactions, uh, just a very simple question of how things are going is a very simple screen to see if something needs to be addressed. How are you doing? And just a simple question like that could used to be enough to get someone the help they need and potentially be another way to help their allergic disease other than, you know, putting more medicine on or potentially exposing the risk. Yeah. Um, maybe we need to change the music we play in our, our in our waiting room or something. You know? <laughs> there you go. Get the zen, yeah, we, we can do a the, study the and see if it reduces reaction. <laughs> <laughs> We could we could play uh, the other the, the 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 that's the control group the intervention group would be playing the news. You'd play the 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 you know one of them twenty four hour news things that would be the stress response. That's uh, true. Anyways, okay. So we have one more article review. I picked this very timely article entitled "Home Monitoring, Home Self Monitoring in Patients with Asthma." using a mobile spirometry system. And this was reviewed by Vivian Hernandez Trujillo. So we are in the age of the coronavirus pandemic and many of our patients are either getting telemedicine visits or we are deferring spirometry until we have a documented negative COVID test because it's a aerosol generating procedure. But the bedrock of asthma care has always been objective information about lung function through spirometry. You know, there is always those poor perceiver phenotype. And I actually had one of those patients that was a poor perceiver. And I was managing them through telemedicine. But when we did bring them in and do a spirometry, there was significant discordance. And without information, I'm not sure I would have done the best asthma care. So how do we provide the best quality of care for our patients? Well, clearly we have to have some sort of objective lung measurement that is safe, not only for the patient, but also your staff and, and so on. So this is a product that is uh, undergoing, uh, it, well, it's currently available to be purchased, but is undergoing this evaluation. It is called... Uh, AOCare, I hope that I pronounced that correctly, A-I-O-C-A-R-E. 
It is 199 euros. It's $235. But essentially, it is a home spirometer. So essentially, it has a Bluetooth connection. You can connect to your phone. It will measure vital capacity. It will measure FEV1. It'll also do a peak flow. There is a mechanism that you would get reminders to do lung function and as well as uploading data to a online platform that could be accessed not only by you, but potentially your treating physician if they coordinate. Now, I think some of those online features do have some sort of monthly payment involved, but clearly I was describing just the, the base version. So this is a Polish company. This was validated and investigated in six sites in Poland. It was on adults. They only really took patients with asthma who had the technology to use the device. They really had a fair number of exclusions, including patients with uncontrolled asthma, cardiovascular or other lung diseases, pregnancy, concurrent illness. There was a fair number of exclusions. So imagine this was really an adult asthma population, but they essentially had an entry visit they enrolled in this study, taught them how to use the device, taught them essentially how to do spirometry. And basically what happens is when they use the device, the patient gets feedback if they did it correctly. And the device looks at multiple parameters. It looks at artifacts in the volume over time curve and full volume loop. It looks to make sure that the Effort by the patient was uniform throughout the entire expiration. Was there that plateau of the volume over time curve where there's that flat expiratory uh, curve there? Did they have a correct beginning of the in exhalation? And that six-second ATS, American Thoracic Society, criteria is measured. And time to reach peak flow as well has been measured. So if it is... Meeting those criteria is labeled as correct, and to get a proper measurement, the app will give you up to eight tries, but they want you to do three measurements to call that valid. Oh, and also, sorry, there had to be repeatability, uh, a delta of 150 mLs on FVC or FEV1. So after that initial visit, about a couple days later, the... Researchers tracked their data online. If they were still having problems, they did bring them in for a retraining session. And the patient was also given the opportunity to diary symptoms. So out of the 86 patients that they enrolled to validate this device, unfortunately, five withdrew. Three of them actually had Wi-Fi problems, so they couldn't upload the data. But in terms of the duration of the study, this was uh, three weeks, and they wanted them to at least track three measurements every day. Um, and only, uh, unfortunately, 27% could really do that. And, you know, that's a fair amount of work. But in terms of three measurements in a week, 86% uh, were able to do that. Now, of that patient population, 62 did not have any problems using the device. So the majority, there was 20 patients who did need retraining, about a third. Um, unfortunately, they were only able to retrain eight out of the 20. But 
you know, patient satisfaction was pretty good. About 87% said it was useful. So at least this proof of concept suggests that, you know, we can use mobile health technology as a surrogate to get some sort of objective information about asthma. Certainly patients are very interested in getting information about their health. We now are seeing the popularity of the Fitbit or Apple Watch, some sort of information about pulse, steps during the day. You know, we have remote glucose monitoring. And, you know, some of these products are a little on the expensive side. So it is possible then that if we did want to expand that to respiratory, we could offer home spirometry, you know, assuming that there's the willingness and motivation to uh, invest in the product for us to be able to help children and adults with asthma and also protect themselves from potential infection and aerosol generating procedures in a clinic. I, I can't wait for this to number one, be more available for patients, but also hopefully reimbursed, right? You would imagine that there would be an incentive for a payer to want their patient's asthma controlled. So let's say they do demonstrate some sort of improvement in asthma outcomes. Wouldn't that justify a reimbursable product just like they would reimburse other adjunctive therapies for asthma? Certainly it's better for the patient than giving them steroids. So I'm just hopeful that this will be disseminated for multiple reasons, especially in the t- current times that we're living in. I love this idea. What a great idea. Um, especially now where I feel like scheduling a spirometry is just rife with so many logistical issues in our clinic. And, you know, if you listen to our previous podcast, Jerry had presented on laryngeal dysfunction and comorbid asthma. And especially I was just thinking for patients like those, for instance, where they're at home and you're trying to distinguish between an asthma flare or a VCD flare, for instance. And also they can just, even for a regular asthmatic, I just feel like because you can repeat that more frequently at home, I think it would provide overall much more comprehensive data than a one-time measurement in the clinic, like every six months. Oh, absolutely. No, I agree. And especially because, you know, spirometry is so effort. I mean, it it is relatively effort dependent in terms of learning how to, there's a learning curve to to get the technique properly, uh, properly done. Um, Now I looked up the, uh, the website and uh, evidently they're charging, it's, it's a little over $600 for this uh, device, which is, you know, not cheap, but, uh, Mm You know, oh, because, that might be the doctor version, uh, Stan. There's like a patient version and there's like oh, a doctor Oh, that version. is the doctor version. You're right. It's yes, Aero Care yes. Doctor. I, don't, I didn't see the other one. Yeah. So the, the, the patient version is 235 or 199 euros. Oh, okay. 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 So that, so I was looking at the, at the wrong one, but, uh, but even, you know, if it saves you one emergency room visit or maybe one, mm-hmm. you know, follow-up doctor visit, I mean, it's, it certainly uh, could be worth it. So yeah, I, I, I'm all in for this. Actually, as a side note, we're talking about home monitoring. What's your both opinion about home peak flow monitoring? Did you ever find it useful? And maybe is it more important now? Say that again. Peak flow. Good old peak flow. Oh, peak flow. Oh, sorry. The peak flows. You know, 
So you're talking about VCD, you know, vocal cord dysfunction. I give these patients a peak flow meter. I, I mean, it's, it's basically worthless in terms of the data that you get. It, it doesn't really help me. And quite frankly, I'm not uh, a fan of the peak flow. And, and I know that some of the guidelines said you should give it to everybody. Uh, I, I just don't know that it provides the you know, feedback that I really need in most of these patients. I agree with Stan. Yeah, and I think the app is giving you feedback, right? It's, mm-hmm. it, it's evaluating you and, and measuring the quality. You know, the patient could basically write whatever they want to and the device, you know, you don't know the quality of the data. So unless they make a smart peak flow, well, I guess this is a smart peak flow essentially because it does do peak flow data. I think you need that sort of secondary professional assessment somehow. And so if that could be automated, that would be great for the patient. Always. Well, anyways, there are some great articles reviewed. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Please rate us if you enjoyed what you're hearing. And we always would love to hear your feedback, ideas for future topics or speakers. Please email that feedback to allergytalk at acaai.org. And again, we plan to continue the conversation on the Doc Matter app. So please log in. Let's talk about these issues. What have you seen in the clinic? And we'd love to hear from you. Have a wonderful day, everyone, and stay safe and stay well. The ACAAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice or intended to replace the judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to procedures, professionals, products, or methods discussed in the podcast and it does not approve or endorse any products, professional services, or methods that might be referenced. Today's speakers have the following disclosures. Drs. Lee and Dr. Kangara have nothing to disclose, and Dr. Feynman has been a speaker for AZBI and Shire and has done research for AIMU, DBV, Shire, and Regeneron.